Craig-Karan. And I'm Veronica McCarthy. And this is Women of Contradictions. Hello. Also, we're really matching today. Have you noticed? We, we do. Our hair looks very, <laughs> mine is slightly lighter, but it looks very similar. I feel like we both have like dark crew neck sweaters. Mine mine is a sweatshirt. Okay. There oh, is okay. like a slight okay. differentiation there, but barely. You can, the mic covers anything, but like the way the hair was falling when we came on right now, because we can see each other when we record. And I feel like this needs to be a, a visual yeah. moment on social, just to how much we sometimes twin without yes. knowing. Yes. We look, despite looking nothing alike, we somehow look alike today. Oh. <laughs> uh, um, well, it's almost Halloween. It is. Your favorite holiday, my least favorite holiday, <laughs> I feel like. And we have contradictory thoughts on Halloween because we do. it's your second favorite holiday, second it, to Christmas. Yes, a, a close second. I, I love I love Halloween. Yeah, and I it could fly by every year and I could give rat's ass about it. But this is what I find fascinating about you because you recently gave me a home tour of your (laughs) Halloween decorations and I am cracking up at how kitsch you are in your decorations. You have this beautiful home that you curate that is so like you with all of these like you know, antique finds, all of your art, yada, yada, yada. And then Halloween comes around and you cover it in like shitty cobwebs. And I'm sitting here like dying on the inside. Like, why is she doing this? <laughs> it, it, it is a contradiction. You know what is so funny to me is like you, when you don't, you don't see something yourself is so many people are like, I would never have taken you for like a big time Halloween or Christmas decorator or anything like that. And I'm like, oh no, this this is me. Like I'm the I'm like I love dress up. I love pretend play. And I feel like this kind of goes into that realm. Like I worked at Disneyland when I was, you know, 18 years old. So I feel like This is true. This is true. Um, I guess in regards to the other aspects of your life, I'm thinking like white pumpkins. <laughs> See, here's and here's the thing. I hate that. I think if you're going to decorate for the holidays, fucking go for it. Like lean into the kitschiness of it. I will I will post a couple photos on our Instagram so you can see like I I have like our bar area set up like it's like a witch's like lair or something. I literally like a call, like she's brewing calls like cauldron <laughs> potions and I like I it just cracks me up because I'm on the opposite end if if which is a very hard if I'm gonna decorate it's like a single white pumpkin no, in the middle I of don't my want that. I want to I want to go like go all in lean into it make it kitschy like why the hell not like it, I think the whole I think the whole idea of it is to have fun and like I don't know. I, I think that's why what I like about this season in general. It feels like, uh, if especially having children, maybe you'll feel differently when you have kids. I mean, some people no. still don't. Yeah, I don't think so. My well, mom, my never husband, did. he he's like, and he's also not American, so that plays into it as well. But he's like, I don't understand this. Uh, what's happening? Why are we here? He does enjoy Christmas a bit more. I will say that, but um, yeah, he doesn't get the Halloween thing either. I mean, my mom was always like very tasteful in her in her holiday decorations. Are you calling me not tasteful, Veronica? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of kitsch going on. No, if like if I'm gonna do that, I want like yeah, I I, I want it kitschy. I actually enjoy I enjoy that aspect. I, of all I of appreciate it. that about you. You're gonna hate my house at the holidays, but that's okay. <laughs> no, I won't. I won't hate it because it will be a reflection of of who you are. But I do think, I do think there is something fun about just just really going for it. Why not? I love it. All right, three things. I think shall, you're up. Shall we? I think I am. All right. So for my first thing. We have a big cultural moment this week happening, which is Britney Spears' memoir is coming out. Probably by the time you listen to this, it actually might be out already. So there'll probably be a number of more bombshells. But at the moment, the big one was that 
there was an excerpt leaked or I think maybe given, I don't know, to people that Britney Spears says she had an abortion at 18 when she was with Justin Timberlake. And someone I've been following for a long time who I love is Lainey Gossip. And Lainey herself, Lainey Lou, is just great at culture, pop culture commentary. And so she did uh, an, a piece from the past week called A Justin Timberlake Conspiracy Theory. And it will kind of tie in actually to our episode where we're talking about parasocial relationships and all this kind of stuff. But basically... So this story comes out about Brittany having an abortion when she was with Justin Timberlake and Justin Timberlake. I don't think she used the word pressure, but basically saying, I don't want to be a dad. I would really like for us not to have this baby. Whereas she would have liked to have kept the baby. So it, it just doesn't sound great. And I feel like the culture is revisiting Justin Timberlake a bit right now and mm-hmm. what he's done over the years. I would just like to come out and say that I have not liked Justin Timberlake for a very, very long time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm biased in all of this, I will say. But what's really interesting is he seems to have maybe bought himself some bots to come out on his side because someone noticed in a lot of comments where this story was out, there were the same comment made and it was two consenting adults made a joint decision. What was best for them at that period in their lives? I see no issue. So that comment appeared like hundreds of times on different coming from different accounts on different like Twitter and Instagram and stuff like that. So it looks it looks a little, you know, like coordinated. Suspicious. Yeah, which I think is really interesting. And we talk about in the in the main episode about Johnny Depp and his use of of bots to kind of drive a certain narrative. And I think for Justin, like this is a I I just think he needs to keep his mouth closed because this is just a lose-lose battle. I don't think he's going to sound good, but I think Justin Timberlake in a lot of ways is his own worst enemy because he can't keep his mouth closed. And I think he is very like, he's very like into himself. And I wouldn't be surprised if he continues to put his foot in his mouth further or buy buy bots that do it for him. Yeah. He's like, it's very Mickey Mouse Club in that sense. That he's, like, a little rah-rah about himself. I, he's, like, classic Brad Pitt, white Teflon man. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out over the coming weeks. Um, Okay, so for my second thing, I thought this was so fun. I love bookstores. I think you also love bookstores. Mm -hmm. And... I love local independent bookstores. We've kind of talked about this before on the show. I feel like I've been on a book kick lately, but I came across this article and I just adored it. It's on Book Riot and it was the most bookish cities in the world. So I have some facts or some questions to pose to you and you can can try to answer. Okay. What do you think is the city with the most libraries in the world? Oh, I would probably, unless it's going to be like a surprise, I would probably say either London or like somewhere in the Middle East, like where civilization began and we first started like taking note. We first started putting down written things. It is Warsaw, Poland. Hmm. Yeah. And it has 11.5 libraries per 100,000 residents. The second city is Nanjing, China. Third is Seoul, South Korea, and Tokyo, Japan. So although so my theory was totally off. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, okay, the city with the most bookstores in the world. What do you think that might be? Okay, well, now maybe I go with London because it's like more capitalistic driven or <laughs> I don't know. Or it's like, or if you're counting like little cute, quaint bookstores, it's like Stockholm or something kind of. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Tell me. It is in Europe. It is Lisbon in Lisbon, Portugal. And the fall, the runner up is Melbourne, Australia. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm I now I'm really upset with myself that I just kept thinking London was the center of the world. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, you're preaching to the choir. Obviously, that's always that would be my inclination on everything, and I will bring up a London bookstore in just a second. Um, the city with the oldest bookstore in the world. What do you think that might be? Oh my god. Okay. Well, now can we go to like the Middle East or Egypt or something where like the papyrus was used? <laughs> you're thinking really old. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we kept it around. We protected it. Okay, don't well, burn it is, books. It is also Lisbon. It is the Livraria Bertrand, which was opened in 17, 1732. So like old, but not actually that old. And I just wanted to give a shout out to my favorite old bookstore, which is in London. And it is Hatchards of London, which is opened in 1797. So slightly, slightly younger, but this is one of my favorite bookstores ever. And Daunt Books is also in London, and I love Daunt Books. It's great. But Hatchards is just gorgeous. And if you ever find yourself in London, near Piccadilly, on Piccadilly, it's also near the Fortnum & Mason, another favorite of mine in London. And you ha- it's so, so nice doing both. Picking up tea and then going into the beautiful bookstore. Highly recommend. Okay, a couple more questions, and then we'll move on. What is the most written about city in the world? Jerusalem. You're living in it. Oh, really? New York? Yeah, New York City. Apparently, it's the city that inspires the most books with over 8,500 books set in New York City. And the second city is London, but only 4,000 books set in London. I mean, look, New York's got a lot of stories to tell. (laughs) It does, yes. Okay, a few more. What do you think is the best city for writers to live in? Like, oh my gosh, that's so interesting to think about. My inclination would be like in a cabin in the woods (laughs) to actually get work done. (laughs) Apparently it's Edinburgh, Scotland. Interesting. Well, is that, I mean, isn't that where J.K. Rowling did Harry Potter? It is, yeah. And they put it down to, you know, obviously the, that is subjective, but um, they put it down to the cost of living, the mm. natural beauty, and the access to uh, research and libraries and, and things like that. And as someone, I, I have not lived in Edinburgh, but I went to school in Scotland. I've spent a lot of time in Edinburgh, and it is a very, very inspiring place to write. It's interesting that they said Edinburgh for the best city for writers, and that does totally make sense. But I was not going to say access to libraries. I was going to say access to culture. It's like both nature Mm. and culture in one location, and I think it depends on what kind of writer you are because— my writing rarely needs a library, but I need inspiration from culture. So while I think I would be most productive in a cabin in a woods, I still need to like throw myself into inspiration of the museums and of the people. Yeah. I love writing in a library. Like I, I think that's the academic in me, but my, I just love it. I think it is. No, so I can't do it. An old because- library, a, like a brand new, like shiny library. No, thank you. But like a really old, smelly, musty library. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Veronica's shaking her head in disgust. Hard pass. <laughs> All right. My final thing. What is my final thing? Oh my gosh. This I just and this also will tie into our, our our main our main topic this week. But I read this and I was like, "You have got to be kidding me!" And it's kind of involving like the culture wars and where we find ourselves right now. But I don't know if you know of the show Bluey. Are you aware of Bluey? I'm aware. I have never seen an episode, but I've re- I've read cultural commentary on Bluey. Yeah, Bluey <laughs> Bluey's big. I think. Especially if you have like a child, maybe one to, I don't know, eight-ish, like it's, it's huge. And I think that one of the reason it is huge is one, because kids like it, but also because parents love Bluey. It is, I don't really love cartoons. It is so good. Like I cry watching Bluey and I'm not like a super emotional person. And there have been a few episodes that really get to me. It's just, it's a really sweet well done show. And why why someone would want to ruin it is beyond me. But in The Atlantic, there was an article, and it says, MAGA Bluey is stressing people out. 
And it basically discusses how adult human beings are taking, apparently there's like chat rooms on Facebook, like fan groups, whatever, who make these like bluey memes. They started out innocent, innocuous enough, like whatever. And then they started taking a turn to the alt-right and getting into the culture wars. And Bluey, the show, is pretty apolitical. Like, there's not... Like, I'm trying to... I feel like I've seen every episode at least once, and I, I can't really think of anything... To me, granted, I'm a liberal person, but anything to me that stood out as being overtly political. But um, they started doing these, like, Bluey memes that were just, like so, so wrong on so many levels. And it just, it's twofold. It's like, why do adult people have to ruin everything? <laughs> like, and we talk about this on the main topic of like, you know, fans and when it crosses over into something else. And I do just feel like more and more, I'm so tired of the internet. Like, I just feel like I enjoy a meme as like a, a silly, funny meme is great, you know, and, or, or like little 15 second content that somebody's producing. That's just stupid and funny. It can be really fun, but I'm beginning to feel more and more like it's not that funness doesn't outweigh all the other shit like this, mm -hmm. where you're just like, what are, what is happening to us? I feel like we're just really melting down. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Are they using the memes for a benefit? Like, are they using the memes to like rouse up the alt-right in the upcoming election? Or are they just doing it for their own enjoyment? I think they're doing it for their own enjoyment slash to piss people off in these like Facebook groups. I think it's like an agitate. Oh, like, I see. They're like putting the memes in these like bluey fan club groups, which is, you know, a little bit like, mm, do we need adult Facebook fan club groups? I'm not sure. But, you know. Whatever. It's it's a sweet enough, innocent enough thing. And then I think the memes are just like circulating that people are posting them now, I think, to just fucking troll, to start start shit. It's I mean, it comes down to my rule of like if you wouldn't do it in front of somebody, then what don't do it in behind the screen. Like right, these are the rules. Right. If you wouldn't say it to them or if you wouldn't like want to egg them on in real life like this, then you don't get to do it behind the screen. And it seems yeah. similar in this regard. Like you wouldn't rouse them up if there was like when you see um, a group of adults, like a book group or something meeting outside, you don't go into that book group and like try to tussle them up. Like yeah. you just allow them to have their book group, allow right. them to have their blueies, like yeah. stop tussling people. Yes. Yeah. It's just, just leave bluey alone for God's sake. <laughs> God save bluey. <laughs> All right. Would you like to get into your things for the week? Yes. My first thing is a uh, response from last week. So we made a comment last week about uh, the male threshold of pain. <laughs> and we had some comments from our five male <laughs> listeners. They did not appreciate us saying that males don't hold thresholds of pain and complain specifically about having a cold when women go on with their lives. And I have always said that it comes down to since a woman is like comes into her menstrual cycle, you learn to deal with pain and have to continue on with life because the minute you complain to your mom at 13 about cramps, she's just kind of like, ah, you got to go to school. Like, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. This is just, would you like some Midal? Would you like a mm -hmm. heat pad? But like, we must, we must move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was on Speak of like a love-hate relationship with uh, Instagram. I was on Instagram uh, last night just scrolling along and I stumbled upon a period pain stimulator. And this, no, simulator, not stimulator, period pain. <laughs> simulator and stimulator, easy words to switch. They are, yeah. Um, but this period pain simulator basically um, attaches to your abdomen and it sends these small electrical impulses directly to the abdominal muscles, causing it to contract in a similar way to how prostaglandins, 
apologies on that, (laughs) induce muscle contractions during menstruation. I mean, look, I'm a woman and I can't even tell you what is producing my muscle contractions during menstruation. Yeah, I've never heard of that word before. (laughs) Yeah, we still know how little we know about how the female body works. Yeah. Anyway, there are these amazing videos online of men using it and then women using it. And like the men turn it up 50% and they are like on the floor in the fetal position and you see these women turn it up to like a hundred percent and they're like, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, but like I, this is like pretty average. (laughs) I I have seen this before and it's, it's pretty amazing. And I also, one, I love it because it proves our point. (laughs) (laughs) We're on the right side of history. (laughs) We're just superior (laughs) beings all around, honestly, but that. Yeah, we do tolerate pain more. I've seen similar ones too with like simulating contractions like during labor Mm -hmm. and the way within like, you know, seconds men are just like in tears, toppled over, can't handle it. And granted, at when I was in labor, there was a point where I was also at at that place. But it is I just think it's it's really interesting and also speaks in a sad way, like speaks to the fact that women do ha- have real pain monthly. And so for some women, like if you have endometriosis or something like that, it is, it, it can be debilitating. And yet we're just meant to go about our lives and, you know, show up at work and show up at school and all those places, despite, despite all of it. Totally. I think it also plays into the idea that women aren't believed when they're, they say they're in pain. Mm, Yes. Color are also not believed because we've been forced to, you know, endure pain for so long that when we are at the point of not of needing someone to believe our pain, they don't necessarily. And I will give a shout out to, I did research into this period pain simulator and it comes from a brand called Some Days and it's a pain, a period pain relief company founded by a woman who has been hospitalized for period pain on and off since she was nine years old. Mm. And so they actually even have pain assessment questionnaires and they have cramp relief cream and they're really tackling the specific problem of period pain that women face on a, on a monthly basis. And I just wanted to give them a shout out and we'll obviously link out as well. And along with these wonderful videos that I just think prove my point. Yeah. They're, they're pretty (laughs) awesome. You should definitely watch them if you haven't seen them. (laughs) Okay. My second thing is about bees. I have been always like, I don't know, raw-rawing the bees on. Have you heard about this, that, like, the bee population is in dire need of resurrection? Because we went through, I think it was in the early 2010s or so, um, they did have significant problems with honeybees. But it's coming around that that has been beyond solved. And Mm. it actually is detrimental to how many honeybees we have on the world, uh, on planet Earth right now. Uh, It's a fascinating article from the New York Times, and it is the kind of article that I live for because it basically is highlighting this idea that the beekeepers are now saying, please don't put bees on your roof anymore. You know all of those companies that need to get like B Corp certified or green certified or yada, 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 that they like care about the environment. An easy way to do that is to like install bees on your roof, especially if you're in a city. And I guess what's happening is it's not, you need biodiversity at the end of the day. And Uh we now have more honeybees on this planet than it's ever been before. And it's not helping the pollinator diversity. And yet we- Why are we just the fucking worst? Always, always the worst, no matter what we do. I know. I'm like, it. okay, so basically there, it, the article explains if you overcrowd any space with honeybees, there's a competition for natural resources. And since bees have the largest numbers, they push out other pollinators, which actually harms the biodiversity. And there's also just this like rooted belief right now about the honeybees that they're dying. And then once the bees dies, we die. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually the case right now. We need like other pollinators that don't have the benefit of honey. So we basically like honeybees because they give us something that we love. And instead now people are like, please go harvest bumblebees. If you want to put bees on your roof, put bumblebees, put another pollinator. I love bumblebees. I'm all about that. You know what is, do you want to know something so ironic, Veronica? Go on. I'm going to be a bee for Halloween. And my husband's going to be a beekeeper. And you know what? This was spurred on by watching the David Beckham documentary. He keeps 
bees, honeybees. And I was like, that is so hot. And I was like, maybe we need to keep bees, but I will not keep honeybees if I do. Apparently bumblebees, which I think are adorable. Well, I will send you, well, obviously I'll link to this article, but yeah, bumblebees, or they say, please just plant a tree. They, (laughs) (laughs) Like that is what beekeepers are now saying. They're like, no more honeybees, please. And I just think it's such an example of us virtue signaling this like moment Mm. of like, we must, we have bees on our roof. We're like a, you know, I don't know. It's from hotels and restaurants and companies. They keep putting bees on the roof and you're actually hurting everything. And I just, this is my pet peeve. I think this like ties into everything when we think we're just like solution, solution, solution. We'll fix it. We'll fix it. We'll fix it. And it's like, no, it's so much more complicated than that. So much Mm. more nuanced. It's the same when we talk about uh, being eco-conscious and when Mm -hmm. people just buy consumer is like they, they buy the new thing that is eco-conscious and throw up the old thing. And Mm -hmm. it just, melts me down and I'm on my high horse again about it but (laughs) bees guys bumblebees we're all into bumblebees okay (laughs) okay my last thing kind of ties into what I was just speaking about but Andrew actually introduced me to this documentary I want to say like a year ago and it's called the biggest little farm and reading this article about the bees reminded me of it and it's a beautiful documentary about a couple that decides to go into regenerative farming and biodiversity right outside Los Angeles like an hour outside towards I think Calabasas and I can't recommend it enough for the idea of what we could actually do if we listen to farmers and listen to people that have like the most knowledge. This couple went in and bought this farm that was uh, monocropped or when you just have one crop Mm -hmm. and it had completely like ruined the soil. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the documentary, you watch them and this one specific farmer that helps them basically create this new biodiversity, this new regenerative farming. And it is just beautiful and overwhelming to me to see how they were able to introduce all of these new species that helped each other and that kept everything in check and created this little ecosystem that then Mm -hmm. produced so much more than what this monocrop had originally done on this farm. Uh, So I can't recommend it enough. And I'm sure there is there's part of me that has this like idealized version of that. And obviously that one regenerative farm does not feed all of America. So we Mm -hmm. also have to hold the fact that you sometimes need monocropping for food issue in America. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what the answer is at the end of the day, but I think this is an interesting place to start. I do think it's the thing about that. I have so much respect for people that go off and do that and are able to, you know, have these farms that they, you know, feed themselves and maybe even like their community through uh, farmers markets and stuff like that. But it is really hard to have your own like the vegetable gardens that like, especially living in Seattle, a lot of people have their like little plots. Like you're just not going to get a lot. Like I, I have, I know someone who is very, very into it, has an amazing green thumb, but like you're not getting a ton. You have to have a pretty big space to get enough food to like really sustain yourself. And I guess I should say this is a full working farm. Like this is their okay. full income. It's not okay. like their backyard. It's okay. acres okay. and acres and acres. Uh, I got it. Which is kind of what, you, and that's what's kind of crazy is like, that's kind of what you need even to just feed like a family of four. You need a lot of space. And yeah, because like my little like sugar pea plant, it's not going to get it. But I, I have a lot of respect for the people who are able to go out and do that because I, I think it's a, a really cool thing. Totally. My my biggest like takeaway was that they basically healed soil that was dead mm. from introducing biodiversity so that prior to that farm was, you know, not feeding anybody. And now mm. they're a full fledged working farm with I forget how many different types of produce they have animals that they like, you know, sell, yada, yada, yada. So, Very cool. so, so cool. OK, I will watch it. And I really will. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hi. I really want to say and we're back. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this is our catchphrase for I, merch. <laughs> I need to, yeah. I need to like maybe come up with something else, but maybe, you know, we just own it. And we're back. Um, <laughs> I love it. Today, we are talking about toxic fandoms. 
In particular, a term that I've come to know kind of more recently, and that is parasocial relationships. And for those who don't know, you had not heard that term before, correct? When when you put this on our list of topics, I was like, okay. It made me think <laughs> of paranormal activity. And I was like, I know that's not what it is, but I'm intrigued. <laughs> so a parasocial relationship is a one-sided relationship where one person extends emotional energy, interest, and time, and the other party, the persona, is completely unaware of the other's existence. Parasocial relationships are most common with celebrity organizations such as sports teams, television stars, and podcasters. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Which I think, and we'll get into, we've definitely had some, we've we've had some one-sided relationships, I think, with people we have, we have followed. And I think what's interesting about this, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it, one, I think it's like very prevalent in our society at the moment. And two, I think it's fascinating because so many things often like are divided by genders and this is not one of them like Mm. both men and women form parasocial relationships men like the main thing that you can think of is through sports through their sports teams through other athletes women it's often through I think women have a wider range of parasocial relationships but you know celebrities and podcasters and authors I mean it it really kind of runs the gambit fashion I feel like a lot of women do it with their fashion icons. Yes, fashion icons. Um, And so I think, though, they're like, there's a spectrum, right, of of fans. And you have, I think, you have fans. You have casual people who you like someone and you kind of follow along. I can think of a number of people that that is for me. I feel like more recently I've become a fan of Taylor Swift. I would not say I am a Swifty. I went to the concert movie the other weekend and I was like, I enjoyed this. I was not crying. I was not weeping. <laughs> I was like, this is enjoyable. I liked some of her songs, not all of her songs. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of her whole situationship that she has going on at the moment. I'm enjoying watching it. Did you just say situationship? Is that what they're calling it these days? I, I think I think it a situationship is what it might be a Gen Z term that I've <laughs> grabbed. I've never with. felt so old as I am right now with you being like, I'm sorry, what was that term you used? Please, please describe your slang. And you'd be like, I think I said that correctly. <laughs> To my understanding, it is when you are having relations with someone, you are not boyfriend and girlfriend, but you're also not totally casual. You're kind of seeing what the situation is. It's Hmm. a situationship. Okay. That also is just like dating to some degree, no? But that's, you know, sometimes we like to have fun, fancy words, Veronica. Okay. 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 Go on. I have also enjoyed it, though, I will say. And I had never knew or heard of Travis Kelsey. And he is my type, let's be honest. He's not my type. And yet I'm I'm so into Travis Kelsey. I'm, I'm just very into the whole situationship. Like, I really am. I'm following it way more than I ever thought that I would. So maybe, maybe I'm entering fandom with Taylor Swift. <laughs> but I that the next level I think is that fandom where you are participating a, a little bit more, you know, you're buying merchandise, you're going to speaking engagements, like you're in forums, you're doing that kind of thing. But I think it's still at a, you know, at a healthy level. And then I think there's the toxic fandoms. And I think that is also a spectrum, but you start getting into you know, you have the the main, the really big extreme where you're a stalker, you know, and people have been dealing with that on and off for years. Um, and then you just have people who are trolls, who are in chat rooms, just really invested in things like people creating fan accounts and spending hours and hours of their lives thinking about these celebrities, talking about these celebrities, posting about these celebrities. And I think that's when it gets into really unhealthy territory. And it was actually funny when I typed in like parasocial relationships, there were so many things that came up for like, am I, am I in a parasocial relationship resources for like how to break up, how to quote unquote break up with like 
whatever celebrity that you might be in this parasocial relationship with. And it has to be a celebrity, right? Like the the caveat to the definition of parasocial is like the other person literally does not know you exist. It's not like when someone's, you know how you can also be like, am I in a toxic relationship? Like you, mm-hmm. if you Google that, it comes up quite quickly because people are like, wait, what what is happening here? It's never, it never bleeds into everyday life. But my question is, it's always celebrity driven or one person has like extreme notoriety or, or you know, I don't even think it has to be extreme. I, I'm going to link to a piece that I enjoyed from um, a writer on The Guardian. And she is, she's a journalist and she, you know, has like a a minor following, you know, like 20, 30,000 people on Instagram. And she had a situation where someone began DMing her. And I think especially for these, like, I think it's actually can be a little bit more in some ways toxic. And she talks about this for like, quote unquote, minor celebrities, because for the giant, for the Taylor Swift's of the world, the Beyonce's, they have a network of people around them. They have a bubble. They have people handling their social media. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sure that they are aware of some level of what the Swifties and the Bayhive and all these people are doing, but I don't think on a day-to-day basis, it's really affecting them. I think there's more security risks with it, which is why these people have kind of crazy security situations. Mm -hmm. But I think for the more like these, like an influencer and a, you know, a journalist or something like that, she was talking about how she, you know, someone comes into her direct messages and they're talking about how much they like her work. And she responds. She's like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. That's so kind of you. And then it kind of becomes something else. Oh, I'd love to meet you. Like when is, when are you doing this? And And then it becomes uncomfortable. And then this woman does end up like meeting her out. And she wants at an event that she was speaking out, like she seeks her out and she's like, oh, we should get lunch together. She starts telling her personal stuff. And this author was a journalist was just kind of like, didn't know how to handle it. And she said in the beginning, she felt bad because she felt like she was encouraging the relationship because she just didn't think too much of it. And then once she realized, oh, no, this is something else. She's, she said she just had a blocker and she felt really bad doing it, but she just didn't know what else to do. Mm. And I think this is where social media in particular can be a little dangerous because it does facilitate this idea of connection between people mm-hmm. that is that can be really one-sided. I mean, and I, I'm not immune to that. Like, I definitely have influencers that I follow that I feel like if I saw them in real life, I'd be like, oh my gosh, Jenny, <laughs> hi, Like because I've been following you for years. But I think I have enough self-awareness to stop myself and be like, oh, right, she has no fucking idea who I am, you know? But I think one of the reasons this has actually become more of a thing, I, I think it's, it's twofold. I think it is the fact that there's an, an intimate factor happening within because of social media. And then on top of that, I, I do think that with the pandemic, when you had a lot of people alone and isolated, it seemed mm. to like really, I don't know, it kind of explode. And there's just so many instances lately of people being really awful online to cele- some to, or very protective, I should say, of celebrities. I don't know if you've like followed like one of the big ones that comes to mind more recently is like the Harry Styles, Olivia Wilde situation where like all of Harry Styles fans, like for whatever reason, they just did not like Olivia Wilde and just inundated her social media with horrible things like on her. I, I think both in her DMs, which she had talked about, but then also on like her comments, which she had to close comments down and, People were, you know, talking about it in chat rooms and just saying really horrible things. And I don't know why there is this like, it's very strange to me because I definitely have opinions and thoughts on celebrities. You and I will have, you know, chats on the side. And sometimes we don't say the nicest things. But I feel like you keep that within your friends, you know, that it is not something I would ever think to say publicly because I am aware that these are people at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And it is very interesting to me that there, there seems to be a disconnect that, oh, no, there is 
that is a real human being with feelings and emotions. And yes, she might be a celebrity and might be flawed in many ways, but that doesn't change her humanity, you know? Yeah. It, it feels like this weird thing about social media and celebrities that it gives you the idea of availability or the idea of like being their friend or being allowed into their world. And I feel like celebrities actually for certain celebrities, like the Brad Pitts of the world, I think are better off social media, but the kind of like mid-level celebrities that realize that they want to continue their careers, maybe like doing endorsements and whatnot, Mm -hmm. they have to play into social media these days. Like I've heard so many stories and out of Hollywood and other casting and other realms of casting where they basically cast not on your talent, but on your social following because they want you to promote. Mm. And so celebrities are forced. I know, right? They're forced into this social media world where it's like to gain followers, you do have to show some interior aspect of your life, some vulnerability. And I feel like some access Mm -hmm. that I do think is how you gain a certain following. But then at that same time, you give that to somebody and they think that they then have a right to comment on your life in a way that I don't know is just mind boggling to me. And it just, and it's the thing is, is you expect it for a lot of these things. There was like a situation recently with Timothy Chalamet and he, he's dating Kendall Jenner and people are like losing their freaking minds over it because they had this idea of who, artsy Timothy Chalamet and the fact that he would be dating a Kardashian is just like, I think they are malfunctioning. And you would think that maybe it'd be teenage girls. Like teenage girls or, or boys could be like up in arms about this because they don't have, you know, a full emotional palette to work with. I feel like they've put so much emotion onto Timothy Chalamet. It's like the boy band scenario when yeah, you're exactly. and you put all of your emotion onto a boy band. Yeah. But here's the thing. It's not teenage girls. Like there was a woman who was being downright psychotic and she is in her forties about Timothy Chalamet talking about how entranced and she's doing all these things and it's conspiratorial. Like he's like in this trap because they have information on. And there's so many instances of this. I I could really go on and on. And I I think one of the big ones, and I never want to talk about this, is Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And like how people were like feel this ownership, possessiveness of Johnny Depp. And it's all these middle-aged women. And it was like getting into QAnon territory. Like these, I I like one day like fell down a rabbit hole and was watching this woman post about so conspiratorial about Amber Heard and all these things and why she trapped him and why, how she tricked him and all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, this woman literally wrote an op-ed, didn't even name him, never named him, just talked about her experience with domestic violence. Do you think to some degree this is like gossip gone wrong? Like, I do Mm -hmm. wonder if, because the way that you're speaking about it, and I have not seen it, I haven't gone down those rabbit holes, so I have not seen this, but it does sound like people are taking gossip to such an extreme and also because they don't have that person either in their family or living in their neighborhood or like, you know, an acquaintance, mm-hmm. they can project so much more that is in an unhealthy sense. Like, I feel like when when you have gossip amongst um, a community, it kind of keeps it in check because you don't mm-hmm. want to ostracize yourself from the community. Mm-hmm. So you it, it levels it. But she's not going to get ostracized from Johnny Depp's life. She's never been to the goddamn island he lives on, you know? Right. So she has no, like, yeah. she's, she, there's no, a parasocial relationship because it's like a one-way relationship, I feel like, has no breaks. It has nothing that's keeping it in check to allow mm. your actions to come back down to earth. Yeah. Because who's, who's going to check you? Is the actor going to come out and be like, hey, please stop doing that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and interestingly enough, this, this came out slightly more recently. Was that because the, the situation with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard became so toxic during the trial and everything, they found that most of the comments, the trolling, came from Russian bots. That oh, you told me this. Most likely bots. 
bought by Johnny Depstein. And so it was like, most of it came from there. I do think there was like a, definitely a handful of real people who were also contributing to it. But um, I think a lot of it came from bots. I also wonder if it is two things. Does it show that we are lonely? The fact that we are using these people that we have never met to place and express so much emotion on? And two, is it like, idolization gone awry because we now do have access in social media. Like we've talked about this before. Like we don't necessarily want to meet our heroes. Like Mm -hmm. there are some people that I don't want to meet because I adore their work so much Mm -hmm. that I'm afraid to see them in the flesh because that will bring them back down to earth. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, no, you are a heavenly angel. Like you do not, you do not walk. Like I walk. I want you to float. (laughs) Yeah. Completely. And I wonder if this is like, I don't know some like, Where in our society did we take a hard left from like a healthy adoration of somebody who is in your field or does something that you really think gives to society Mm -hmm. to this like extreme fan account that you spend eight hours a day of your life running? Yeah. You know, you say that about like the adoration and the idolization. And I, I wonder, because first off, I think it's, it's a more new phenomenon, but like not in like new in the last like 20 years. Like I think really since like the dawn of like film, you know, when you could Mm. see people and everything, fandoms existed. And you think of like the teenage girls watching Elvis Presley and the Beatles, you know, arrive in America and stuff like that. There's been hysteria around celebrities for a little while now. But I do wonder, like religion is on the decline everywhere uh, in the Western world in particular. And I do wonder if there's a correlation with that, with, you know, you, we want to, we want to, you know, put somebody on a pedestal. And so maybe with the decline of religion, celebrities have become like our, you know, kind of modern deities in some way. And I mean, it's a joke, you know, you think of Beyonce and like, I, I joke, I'm like, you know, oh, I'm going to pray to Beyonce because I'm not praying to anybody else. So like, but I'm aware, like, I'm not actually praying to Beyonce, but it's possible that people are. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I 100% think that it is tied to a decline in religion or we, I think at the end of the day, we want to worship something. Yeah. And sometimes the thing that we worship is unhealthy. Like some people worship capitalism. Some people yeah. worship the patriarchy. Yeah. Uh, and some people worship Taylor Swift. And uh, mm-hmm. that can be healthy to a point, you know, and there's this, I think it's moderating that quote unquote worship, especially if that worship is, you know, something that has a negative side effect to it. Um, But I don't think, I don't think you have a person in this world that doesn't worship something or that doesn't have, that doesn't hold something in higher regard. Uh, And in regards to the music thing, there was this uh, idea that, you know, when you're in church and we've seen these depictions of people being overcome by like Mm. the spirit of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, The Holy spirit. I don't even know. I'm like, I don't know what they overcome are overcome (laughs) by because I once fainted in church from the goddamn incense. That's what happened to me. I was like, I was not overcome. There was too much smoke in the Episcopalian (laughs) church. (laughs) Um, But apparently there's this idea that when you're in a group setting with a lot of people and music is playing, that there's like the energy of the community. And we look to that a lot in sports Mm. and in arenas with the Taylor Swifts and that idea that like when they make the goal, you jump up. But it's that idea of like when you watch somebody score a goal in soccer and you're holding your breath and the goal goes in and then the whole stadium erupts. I feel Mm -hmm. like we've taken that idea from church and put it into our stadiums, our rock arenas and everything. And then we've now gone a step further. You, you're, you can pray to God in any form you want every night. And that in some way is a parasocial relationship. I mean, (laughs) I guess some people would say that he knows we all exist or she knows, or it knows we all exist, but I have doubts. (laughs) (laughs) I'm much more along the lines of like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Like, hello, what is going on? (laughs) You know what's so funny? This is a a bit of a tangent, but I, and we will, I think, do an episode on this at some point. I grew up more or less in the evangelical church and, uh, a huge part of that is worship music. And I always really loved worship music and felt very moved by it, which 
when I was a teen, especially, I was like, it's the Holy Spirit. I can feel the Holy Spirit. And I have since left the church and I do not participate in any of that anymore. But I saw something that was basically like, it was a meme of some type. And it was like, it turns out um, I didn't feel the Holy Spirit. I just really loved live music. <laughs> and I was like, that, that is so true because I have been at concerts now since where like, I like Bonnie Vare is one of my, I, I love him. And I've had that same feeling. It's like the, the Holy Spirit has moved me through Bonnie Bear. And so I do think, yeah, there's some, there's something about that. You know, we want that slightly euphoric kind of otherworldly feeling and connection. I think community is a huge part of that. Totally. But yeah. I think where it, I think where it starts to get unhealthy is where I think it's actually where you remove it from community and it goes beyond just like, Oh, we're at the football game together. We're watching the match and we're at the pub before and we're celebrating after. And then you go home and then you're in the chat rooms and you're like yelling with people on Reddit or something like that. And you're deep diving these things. And that's when I think it becomes something else. And I definitely think that is a modern problem and I don't know if it comes from loneliness or, you know, it's just you already have maybe some mental health issues and this just furthers it along. I This is also kind of random, but I can't help but thinking of this. And this is so nitty. This is, this is very random. But there was this influencer that I followed. She was British. And... If you are a UK listener, you probably know this. If you are not a UK listener, you'd be like, what are you talking about? But just follow along with me for a second. Basically, she had this account called Mother of Daughters. She had four daughters, two older ones and a set of twins. And then her husband also had an, had an account called Father of Daughters. I actually found out about her by listening on the high low because they talked about her on the high low. And she got a lot of toxic stuff spewed at her, whereas her husband, also an influencer, also using his family and his kids for, you know, sponsored posts and everything, got way less, way, way less. So that was all happening. But it turned out there was like this huge twist. And it was this whole thing where she herself was on platforms being a troll to other influencers and talking crap in platforms on like her husband and like, it was weird. And this woman, she was, she's like a NICU NATO nurse or something. Like she's, she has a career. Like she was very successful as an influencer and let, she like spiraled into this dark place and it all came out and she's basically not really on social media anymore. He still has an account and she kind of pops up on there. Their marriage last I checked in was still together, but like it is, you're, you're like, what? happened? Like, how did you, how did you, how did you just go into this, the darkness? Like, but I think that if you are not in a good place anyways, it's easier to, to get there through the internet. Yeah. And I also think like hate breeds hate. So if she was getting that Mm -hmm. given to her, Mm -hmm. I think that people have this weird, not people like in a generalization, but I think sometimes people have to express it the same way it's given to them. Like mm. if a throw, if a stone's thrown at them, they throw a stone at somebody else. It's like, they want to pass the hurt on to somebody else mm. and like yeah. be in the power seat there. Cause I feel like you're in the victim seat when it's been given to you. But if you're giving it to somebody else, you're like, no, I can play this game as well. And like pass on this to somebody else and be in a, in a position of control. But I remember you telling me about that. And I also think it just, again, like we've talked about this in terms of political conflicts and whatnot, that it's so hard to actually have a conversation on social media because you are hidden behind a screen Mm -hmm. and you, you say things that you would not say to somebody's face. And so Mm -hmm. now we are living in a society that people are holding on to things that someone would not have said to them in like other times when we didn't have this ability to hide. And I think it is very detrimental to hide behind a screen and 
whatever you write on social media or say on social media, know that you would do the same if the person was standing in front of you in their full humanity. Mm -hmm. It's so true. And I think that, and going back to, you know, hurt people, hurt people. Like, I think that that's probably, I, I would guess that there's probably a really strong correlation between people who are in these toxic parasocial relationships and in their own real world, maybe also have toxic relationships or, you know, uncured childhood trauma or, or un, 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 not uncured, un, resolved. Okay. There we go. Unresolved. <laughs> unresolved. Get it. Unhealed. <laughs> Still broken. <laughs> unresolved childhood trauma. Um, and yeah, and it, it's just, it's sad. I think, because I think, I think there is an element to fandom that is great and fun. And like I said, can build community and all of that kind of stuff. And I, I, I think one of the things that I've kind of come around with Taylor Swift is just seeing the joy and the enthusiasm, especially of young women and men and and a same similar with like the Beyonce concerts, like seeing people like f- really fully express themselves through their work and like how you can, I can't hate on that, you know, like that's beautiful, but then it can go into a dark place. And then I think she, she does have fans who are more extreme and, you know, who feel a certain possession over her and, I, like I said, I think she's, she's, she's all right because she has, you know, a network of people around her, but it, it is those, you know, maybe smaller celebrities that I think, I think it can get a little, it can get a little dark. There was a, there was a story actually, um, it just came to me. One of the big presenters in British television, Holly Willoughby, she like did a morning show for years. She left because there were serious death threats and a kidnapping plot against her children. And so she's like not presenting anymore. She's, I I don't know if she's like going, like moving or going into hiding. I don't know, but it's like, that's insane. But I think, you know, especially like a morning program, you're putting yourself out there every day. Mm -hmm. Like you do, I I know there was a time where I used to watch like Katie Couric and Matt Lauer in the morning before I would get ready for work. And I did feel a sense of, you know, familiarity with them. Oh my gosh. Did you know that Matt Lauer was my like lower school crush? Like I, I mean, I obviously condemn what he did and why he's gone, but he was, I thought he was like the bee's knees when I was like too young to think that a man in a suit is attractive. (laughs) (laughs) He was before, I feel like he lost his hairline and some men can pull off no hair and some men can't. And and I was fine with his no hair. It was so strange. I had such a thing for Matt Lauer. I remember when all the, all the, um, accusations came to light my girl my high school girlfriends all texted me and they're like oh man what a fall what a loss for you that was my parasocial relationship I put all (laughs) of my like I didn't have a boy band I had a fandom about I had Matt Lauer like what a strange child (laughs) oh my gosh that that's really funny yeah so anyway I just I I'm going to, I have quite a few links on the, all this stuff. And if you yourself or have found yourself in another social relationship, I now have links for you to find a way to break up with it. And I do think, you know, I. The first I'll, Brit wants to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll end on this. And I think um, we, we are doing something where we are putting ourselves out there. We're being very vulnerable, you know, and at the moment we don't have a huge following, hopefully, you know, at some point that changes. Um, but I've made a really conscious decision. I, I don't, I try not to talk about my kids too much. I try, I don't use their names. I don't use my husband's name and it's not, I'm not trying to be like cagey or anything like that. I do just feel like a story came out about like a podcaster who was murdered in Seattle because she had that hit, and way, I know. that hit way too close to home for this uh catastrophist yeah, over here so I was like okay so that is why <laughs> that is why I keep I, I gotta keep a little distance I feel like I do live a lot of my vulnerability on the internet more than I ever expected. And I find it easier to be vulnerable on the internet than I do in some of my most intimate relationships. And I have gotten some 
DMs from like friends of friends who have found my work and read my essays. And I have loved them all. Like, because they have shown like a real understanding of, and they have been so respectful of the work that I've put out there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just, I hope that that, that type of relationship with the internet and the people on the internet continues. Yeah. And I think there's something wonderful about being openly vulnerable and seeking connection within, you know, realms and people that we don't know. I've benefited from, you know, Brene Brown being vulnerable and opening up about stuff. So I think, I think there's a really great way to do it. And then there's a really not great way to do it. And so it's just finding like everything. It's just, it's finding that, that balance. Agreed. Find us on Instagram at Women of Contradictions. Sign up for our newsletter at womenofcontradictions.com. Or drop us a note at hello at womenofcontradictions.com. Till next time. Ciao.